The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Improving the Patient Experience in SLE and LN, the Intersection of Early Diagnosis, Individualized Treatment, and Culturally Competent Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JPU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Find out how much you know about improving the patient experience for those with SLE and LN through a simple three-step process in this self-assessment activity comprising five questions. First, answer the baseline question to evaluate your knowledge and skills. Next, review the supporting evidence shared by Drs. Sarah Zishek and Brad Rovin. Finally, answer the question again to demonstrate what you've learned. Each correct answer automatically counts toward post-test completion, which means that getting your CME credit is fast and easy. Hi, this is Dr. Sarah Shake from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to this educational activity on diagnosing and managing systemic lupus erythematosus and lupus nephritis in the context of culturally competent care. Systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, is a complex heterogeneous autoimmune disease that can affect virtually any organ system of the body from head to toe. It can affect people of all ages, including children. However, women of childbearing age, particularly 15 to 44 years, are at greatest risk of developing SLE. In fact, women of all ages are affected far more than men, and estimates range from 4 to 12 women for every one man. Minority racial and ethnic groups, Black, African American, Hispanic or Latino, Asian, and American Indian or Alaska Native are affected more than white or Caucasian patients. Among chronic inflammatory diseases in young women aged 15 to 24 years, it is a leading cause of death with higher rates of death than diabetes or HIV. So why is early detection of lupus so important? We recognize that on average, it takes about four to six years and about three providers before patients receive an accurate diagnosis of lupus. And we also know that during this time, there is risk for damage to organs and organ damage leads to a five-time increased risk of death. So why is the lupus diagnosis so difficult? Lupus is often called the great masquerader or the great mimicker because it can mimic viral syndromes, thyroid disease, and other illnesses. There's a variety of symptoms that can develop and many different organs that can be affected, and these symptoms may develop slowly or suddenly. Furthermore, no two patients with lupus have the same brand of lupus or the same symptoms, which often makes this a difficult disease to diagnose. Oftentimes, patients also have concurrent symptoms of depression and or fibromyalgia. And most importantly, there is no single gold standard diagnostic test for this disease. Let's talk a little bit about ANAs or anti-nuclear antibodies and their significance in the diagnosis of lupus. So the ANA is an autoantibody against the cell nucleus components. The recommended way to test for this is by indirect immunofluorescence, and it is a sensitive but not specific test for SLE. It's useful if the pretest probability for lupus is high and if the patient has symptoms that are suggestive of SLE. The ANA can be seen in healthy subjects. In fact, 15 to 20 percent of the general healthy population can have a positive ANA. A positive ANA can also be seen in other autoimmune diseases, along with thyroid disease, Graves' disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, autoimmune hepatitis, primary biliary cirrhosis, hepatitis C, and HIV. Here you can see on this slide a list of autoantibodies that are associated with SLE, and you can also see the specificity associated with lupus. For example, the ANA is a sensitive but not very specific test for SLE, and anti-double-stranded DNA has high specificity for lupus, especially when you can trend it with an elevated anti-double-stranded DNA seen with active disease. The anti-Smith autoantibody similarly is very specific for lupus, and then you can see here a list of other autoantibodies and their specific associations. So we know that autoantibodies can precede the diagnosis of lupus by many years, and we are currently not able to predict whether positive autoantibody titers will result in clinical disease, which is often the conundrum. So the best practices in rheumatology choosing wisely campaign recommends that ANA subserologies should not be checked without a positive ANA and clinical suspicion of immune-mediated disease. A positive ANA does not mean that you have lupus. About 32 million Americans have a positive ANA, but important to recognize that the majority of people with a positive ANA 
do not have lupus. Approximately 1.5 million Americans are estimated to have systemic lupus erythematosus. In this slide, we can see that lupus is a very heterogeneous disease with a lot of heterogeneity in clinical manifestations. This disease can affect almost any organ system from head to toe. And seen in this visual, you can see that it complications can affect any part of the body. Patients can have cutaneous and mucosal complications, involvement of the heart and the lungs, including pleural effusions, pericarditis and pericardial effusions, renal complications, including glomerulonephritis, gastrointestinal complications, hematologic complications, arthritis and musculoskeletal complications, and then neurologic complications in addition to constitutional symptoms along with fevers. Patients can present with any one of these complications or symptoms or a combination of symptoms and complications. In this slide, we see featured the 1997 ACR classification criteria, which was subsequently updated with the 2019 ACR-ULAR classification criteria. It's important to note that classification criteria are not diagnostic criteria and are not to be used in making a diagnosis of lupus when a patient is sitting across from you in clinic. In fact, the classification criteria were developed for use in clinical research and clinical trials because this is such a heterogeneous disease. In the 2019 ACR-ULAR criteria, you see that in order to enter this algorithm, patients must have a positive ANA in a titer greater than 1 is to 80. This is an additive criteria, which means that the highest weighted criterion from each domain is counted towards the total score. In order to be classified as SLE, patients must meet at least one clinical criterion. They must have the entry criterion, which is a ANA greater than 1 is to 80, and have a total of 10 in the additive criteria. And shown here, you see the immunologic domains and criteria, endophospholipid antibodies, complement proteins, SLE-specific autoantibodies. And you can see here that even if multiple criteria are present, you would pick the one that has the highest weight in terms of the number listed by its side. In terms of clinical domains and criteria, you see here constitutional symptoms, hematologic, neuropsychiatric, mucocutaneous, cirrhosal, musculoskeletal, and renal. And again, the idea here is to pick the highest weighted criterion and create an additive score in order to see if patients would be classified as having SLE. So the take-home messages here, lupus is a heterogeneous disease where the symptoms and severity vary. The early diagnosis of lupus is critical and ongoing co-management with specialists is key. And the ANA is a useful test, but only if the pretest probability for lupus is high. Hi, this is Dr. Sarah Shake from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to this educational activity on diagnosing and managing systemic lupus erythematosus and lupus nephritis in the context of culturally competent care. Let's discuss optimizing treatment decisions in SLE. We recognize that there are different disease stages in SLE and its various courses as shown on this slide. We know that there is a break in immunologic tolerance, which is typically what we refer to as the preclinical phase, and then begins the stage of acute inflammation with translation into overt disease. This is usually when there's onset of disease and acute symptoms, which is often referred to as an acute flare. This is also usually the time when a diagnosis of lupus is made. From that point on, the disease has an individual course for each patient. There are some patients who have recurrent flares. There are some patients who have persistently progressive disease, after which this becomes a chronic autoimmune disease. We also recognize that associated with this disease, along with flares and treatment and side effects of treatment, there is increased risk of end organ damage. Patients with kidney disease often can go on to dialysis, and there is an increased risk of death. In terms of outcome, patients may go into a state of remission, and then there may be resolution of symptoms over time. But this is typically considered a chronic autoimmune disease. The concept of treat-to-target in SLE is an emerging one. We recognize that damage is driven initially by inflammation, but with time and progression of disease, there are also medication side effects. We know that early organ damage is associated with reduced survival. So let's think about the treat-to-target approach in lupus and what we mean when we think about these targets. The treatment target of SLE should really be remission. And when remission cannot be reached, then we are thinking about the lowest possible disease activity. There are a lot of intangibles also when we think about lupus and patients and the symptoms that they're experiencing. Patients often experience pain, difficulty with memory and brain fog, fatigue and depression. 
In this slide, we will cover assessment of disease activity and severity. In terms of disease activity, we think about the manifestations of the underlying inflammatory process at a point in time in terms of magnitude and intensity. So when evaluating the patient and assessing disease activity, there are generally three patterns of disease to consider. The first is intermittent disease activity, or disease flares, in which there is relapsing and remitting disease and there are periods of disease quiescence in between the flares. We then think about a chronically active disease in terms of patterns of organ involvement and then a period of quiescent disease. In terms of disease severity, we think about the type and the level of organ dysfunction and its consequences, and this is often described as mild, moderate, and severe. And then we think about damage and the degree of irreversible organ dysfunction that is caused by the disease. I want to now introduce the concepts of remission and a lupus low disease activity state. When we think about remission, we ideally would think of a state in which a patient has no disease activity. They're on hydroxychloroquine, they're not on any steroids, and we know that when patients are in remission for at least two consecutive years, that is associated with halting of damage accrual. Next, we think about whether or not this is really practical, and we recognize that so many of our patients really don't fit this bill. So then let's introduce the idea of a lupus low disease activity state or LLDAS, which is really a pragmatic and clinically relevant outcome. In this lupus low disease activity state, we envision a state in which patients have low disease activity as described by a SLEAD-A score less than 4, they're on stable doses of hydroxychloroquine, and prednisone less than 7.5 milligrams per day, and they are in fact on immunosuppressive therapy that is well tolerated and in stable doses. And we know that patients who spend more than 50% of their observed time in this LLDAS or lupus low disease activity state have significantly reduced damage accrual. They have less risk of myocardial infarction, less risk of osteoporotic fracture, and less incidence of progression to end-stage renal disease. Let's discuss now some hydroxychloroquine basics and nuances. And shown on this slide, we see the tremendous benefit that hydroxychloroquine has across the board in lupus patients. We recognize that it not only improves clinical symptoms, but also has additional benefits like decreasing lipid levels and decreasing risk of thrombosis. We know that it increases survival and decreases flares. We recommend hydroxychloroquine for all patients with SLE unless they have a contraindication to the drug, which can be seen when patients develop things like hypersensitivity, intolerance to the drug, rashes, retinopathy, or dyspigmentation. Hydroxychloroquine should be dosed at the dose of 5 milligrams per kilogram of actual body weight, and routine screening is recommended as outlined in the slide on your screen if there are no risk factors for retinal toxicity. And in fact, at this dosing regimen of less than 5 milligrams per kilogram per day of actual body weight, the risk of retinal toxicity from hydroxychloroquine is less than 2% for usage up to two years. Seen on your slide now are traditional treatments for SLE, and we all recognize that these can be used in different circumstances based on the clinical manifestations that the patient is experiencing. One important thing to recognize is that our goal should be to minimize the use of prednisone in our patients, so to lower the dose and the duration of prednisone that we use, especially because we recognize that prednisone is directly or indirectly responsible for over 80% of organ damage in patients with lupus. We want to think about biologics in our patients when they have persistently active disease, when they are continuing to flare, and if we cannot reduce the dose of steroids. Shown on your slide are numerous therapeutic targets in SLE. We know that there are several new and emerging approaches, including those that target B cells, cytokines, or intracellular signaling pathways, which are providing hope for patients with lupus. Now let's talk about belumumab as a therapeutic option in patients with SLE. Belumumab targets the B-cell survival factor, BAS or BLIS, and inhibits the survival of B-cells, including autoreactive B-cells, and it reduces the differentiation of B-cells into immunoglobulin-producing plasma cells. We now know through various clinical trials that belumumab added to standard of care therapy significantly reduces disease activity compared with standard of care therapy alone. In fact, we know that it reduces disease activity, decreases the risk of severe flares, and patients were able to reduce their prednisone dose at the end of every study.
So in terms of recommendations that come from ULAR, consider belumumab as add-on therapy for patients who have inadequate response to standard of care. And how we define inadequate response is really residual disease activity that's not allowing us to taper corticosteroids or patients who are frequently flaring. Let's move on now from a B-cell-centric view to now a type 1 interferon-centric view of SLE pathogenesis. We know that type 1 interferons, and particularly interferon alpha, has been identified as a central pathogenic mediator in SLE and holds important potential for advancing care of patients. Enafrolimab is a human monoclonal antibody to the type 1 interferon receptor subunit 1, which blocks the action of type 1 interferon. It is approved at a dose of 300 milligrams IV every four weeks, and in the studies that led to the approval of this drug, it showed efficacy across the following domains. It resulted in improved disease activity overall, oral corticosteroid reduction, improved skin disease, and reduction in flares. From the trials, we know that there's an increased risk of herpes zoster with anaphrolimab given the mechanism of action of this drug. So consider a shingles vaccine in immunosuppressed or immunocompromised patients, especially patients in whom you are considering therapy with anaphrolimab. So in this slide, we see that anaphrolimab resulted in clinical benefit regardless of SLE disease duration based on post-hoc analysis of data from the two phase three trials. Patients were divided into those who had recent onset of disease less than two years and patients who had established disease greater than two years, and anaphrolimab was effective across the board. Similarly, in this slide, you see that anaphrolimab provided clinically meaningful benefit over placebo with or without prior biologic exposures across efficacy endpoints, and the treatment response was consistent regardless of baseline standard of care therapy. In terms of improving outcomes, the most important consideration is aligning the goals of our patients with our goals and the concept of shared decision-making. We want to make sure that we are thinking about prevention of flares and organ damage. We're thinking about long-term patient survival for our patients, and most importantly, improvement in their health-related quality of life for their day-to-day activities. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Brad Roven. I'm a nephrologist at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and I'm really happy to be involved in this educational activity talking about lupus and lupus nephritis. Lupus nephritis is one of the major fields that I practice in, both in my clinical day-to-day activity as well as in laboratory investigation. So today, we're going to talk about the detection of kidney involvement in patients with lupus. So as you all know, patients with lupus are susceptible to kidney involvement, and they should undergo testing for kidney involvement at regular intervals. This will include a urinalysis with examination of the urinary sediment, looking for hematuria and cellular casts. Estimation of the urine protein excretion, and that will usually start with a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio, and then a uh, serum creatinine measurement, as well as an estimated glomerular filtration rate. Elevated anti-double-stranded DNA, antibody titers, low complement levels, in particular C3 and C4, often indicate active lupus and are often seen in patients with lupus nephritis, although the utility of serologic assessment does differ among patients. The frequency of testing really depends on whether or not the patient has a history of previous kidney involvement. In patients who have never been diagnosed with kidney disease, this evaluation is often performed by the patient's uh, rheumatologist. So kidney involvement, as you know, is very common in patients with lupus. Up to 60% of patients with adult onset lupus will have involvement of the kidney, and up to 80% of patients with pediatric disease will have involvement of the kidney. Kidney involvement usually becomes apparent in the first five years after onset of the disease, although it can be longer. And the presentation is highly variable, from subclinical nephritis to a rapidly progressive glomerular nephritis. Kidney disease in lupus is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Kidney damage and end-stage kidney disease are very important predictors of mortality in lupus. So 
If you look at here at this table, it's the prevalence of kidney abnormalities in patients with lupus nephritis. And what you see right away is a proteinuria is at 100%. So as you know, nothing in medicine is at 100%. And the reason proteinuria is listed at 100% is because that's the way we define lupus nephritis. Patients have proteinuria as a sort of the first hint that something is going on in the kidney. However, only about half the patients have nephrotic range proteinuria. If you look at microhematuria, you see that most patients also have blood in their urine, although it's very seldom macroscopic, so the patients won't notice it. The other thing I've sort of highlighted here is impaired kidney function. It has a wide range of prevalence, 40 to 80%. And the reason for that is I think we miss a lot of patients with subtle abnormalities in kidney function. If you look at life expectancy in patients with lupus nephritis, you can see that it's markedly uh, reduced. This graph is very sobering when you think about it. The general population of women and men are listed in the green and blue hashed lines. And then you see patients, all patients with lupus in the orange line. And you can see that patients with kidney disease do worse than patients with general lupus. And the patients with kidney damage, so in other words, impaired GFR, chronic damage to the kidney actually have very early decline in mortality or decline in life expectancy, increase in mortality. So looking at the risk of end-stage kidney disease in patients with lupus nephritis, this was a systematic review of 187 studies. and It's broken out into developed countries and developing countries. What you see in the line is, or the graphs, are five and 10-year and 15-year durations of lupus and the end result of the probability of developing end-stage kidney disease. And you can see that from the 1970s or 1980s going forward, there's been a general improvement in the prognosis of patients with lupus nephritis with respect to having end-stage kidney disease, but we haven't eliminated the problem. And if you look at the 5, 10, and 15-year percentage of patients with class 4 or class 5 lupus nephritis who will develop end-stage kidney disease, you can see that this is quite substantial. After 15 years of having lupus nephritis, maybe up to 40% of patients with class 4. So this remains a big problem. So how do we actually look for lupus nephritis in our patients with lupus? And one of the most important things to do is assess proteinuria. And of course, we have several mechanisms to assess proteinuria. The most simple is looking at the urine dipstick that can be done easily in any patient office. And you do have to keep in mind that the level of proteinuria will be affected by the specific gravity, i.e. the concentration of the urine. So if you have a modest amount of protein in the urine and it's very dilute, then the actual density or color appearance on the dipstick will be less. You can have a small amount of proteinuria in a very concentrated urine and it will look more. So really, we do need to quantify the amount of protein. And the most popular mechanism of quantifying is called the random spot protein creatinine ratio or PCR. The other way to measure proteinuria is through a 24-hour urine. And more specifically, what we like to do now is in all the clinical trials, as well as in our own clinics, we measure the 24-hour protein-to-creatinine ratio when we need a very accurate estimate of the amount of protein that the patient is putting out. Now, what about a kidney biopsy? This has been somewhat controversial, although I think it's becoming less and less controversial. It was sort of pointed out early on that when we had very few medications to treat lupus nephritis and everybody was treated the same way, why do you need a kidney biopsy in lupus? Now that we have more and more specialized medications, it really becomes very important to understand what you're treating. And I think actually this applied even before we had more specific medicines for lupus nephritis. First of all, not all kidney disease in a lupus patient is lupus nephritis. 5% of the patients may have other glomerular diseases. Additionally, there's something called lupus portocytopathy. And while that's sort of a code word for the nephrologist, this means that lupus can actually damage the podocytes and cause proteinuria. And this type of disease can be independent 
of lupus nephritis, which is defined as an immune complex glomerulonephritis, or it can coexist with lupus nephritis in a small percentage of cases. Nonetheless, it's easier to treat glomerulonephritis that's immune complex often. It's like minimal change disease, and these patients often respond to glucocorticoid. So it's important to distinguish. Additionally, patients with lupus can develop antiphospholipid antibody syndrome nephropathy, and that can be in the presence of verified lupus nephritis or in the absence of lupus nephritis, and it can occur in up to almost a quarter of the cases. That requires a different treatment, generally anticoagulation, and so it would be important to understand that when you are evaluating a patient with kidney involvement in lupus. Interstitial nephritis does occur. It's fairly rare in the absence of glomerulonephritis, but again, would be important to distinguish. On the other side of the spectrum, not all kidney disease in lupus needs to be treated aggressively with immunosuppression. For example, class 2 lupus nephritis often responds well to sort of the modest immunosuppression that one might use to cover the symptoms of general extrarenal lupus. And then chronic changes with little active inflammation, which can occur after an episode of lupus nephritis. And the problem is these chronic changes in the kidney can cause the patient to have proteinuria. They don't need to be treated with immunosuppression. Rather, they need to be treated with antiproteinuric drugs and control of blood pressure. So the kidney biopsy, as you can tell, serves many purposes and really should be done in the diagnosis and workup of patients with suspected lupus nephritis. Okay, this is sort of an algorithm that we use to evaluate the lupus patients for lupus nephritis. We always screen for lupus nephritis at the initial presentation of lupus. We screen whenever there is a suspicion that a patient's lupus might be flaring. And then at a minimum, we screen yearly in patients with lupus because, as we noted, the presentation of lupus nephritis can be quite variable and sometimes. It's just subnephrotic proteinuria without much in the way of systemic symptoms, and it's important to pick that up. The testing panel we use, of course, is very simple. Estimated glomerular filtration rate, which people get standard on their laboratory data now when they order a serum creatinine in most places, and a simple urinalysis. If the EGFR and the urinalysis are normal, no further testing is required at that point in time. However, if the EGFR and or the urinalysis are abnormal, we really need to verify that the abnormal GFR is attributable to lupus. And the reason I say this is because, as you all know, lupus patients are often on a lot of medications that can impair kidney function, not the least of which are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs used for the arthritis or arthralgias of lupus very often. Lupus patients are prone to infection and sometimes infection can affect kidney function. So it's really important to make sure that the GFR abnormality is due to lupus. If the urine is impaired and or due to lupus and the urine protein to creatinine ratio from a 24-hour collection is 500 milligrams or more, we suggest doing a kidney biopsy for diagnosis and planning. If you look at the recommendations from the ULAR ERA EDTA, so this is the European Rheumatology Society and the European Nephrology Society guidelines, they also agree with what I just said, which is signs of kidney involvement, including glomerular hematuria and or cellular casts, a proteinuria 500 or half a gram a day, and an unexplained decrease in GFR. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Brad Roven. I'm a nephrologist at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. I work a lot in our lupus nephritis clinic with our rheumatologists, and I study lupus and lupus nephritis in my laboratory. So I'm very pleased to talk to you today about our treatment approach for lupus nephritis, and more specifically, rethinking our treatment approach for lupus nephritis. So I think you all know the conventional strategy is, call it a step-up approach. We start initially treating patients with glucocorticoids plus an immunosuppressive agent. We do this, of course, to achieve a renal response and escalate therapy if there's lack of response or a renal flare. 
However, I'd like to propose a step-down approach, a different strategy, where we start with initial treatment, again, with glucocorticoids, but a combination of immunosuppressive and immunomodulatory therapy. And we'll talk about this as this discussion progresses. And what we want to do is achieve and sustain a kidney response. And then over time, one or more of the therapies will be tapered and potentially discontinued. So what's the rationale for shifting our paradigm in the treatment of lupus nephritis? Well, I think you'll all appreciate treating patients with lupus. There's major limitations to conventional regimens. We have very often incomplete renal response and a very prolonged time to renal response. We have substantial rates of flare, lupus nephritis flare. Each flare causes damage to the kidney. I'll show you that in just a minute. And then we develop, or the patients develop, significant rates of chronic kidney disease, end-stage kidney disease, and mortality. So why is it important to treat patients early? And a phrase I and a lot of my colleagues like to use in nephrology is, time is kidney. Let me go through the graph on the right first. This is GFR over a patient's age. If you look at the orange line, you see that if you have a single episode of lupus nephritis, you actually decline much more quickly. And I think this is an underappreciated idea, but every time you have an inflammatory lesion of the kidney, you're left with some kidney damage. So let's talk about the guidelines for lupus management. This first guideline I'm showing was published in 2022 in Kidney International Supplement from the KDGO group, which is uh, Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes. And this is the traditional treatment of lupus nephritis, starting out with intravenous methylprednisolone and then followed up by high-dose oral prednisone that's tapered over some period of time to a more tolerable dose. Maintenance therapy, again, according to the KDGO guidelines, are a lower dose of prednisone. We like patients less than 10 milligrams a day, ideally much less. And then the first choice of maintenance therapy would be mycophenolate derivative, and that can be mycophenolate mofetil or mycophenolic acid. As the first choice, the ERA, EVTA, so this is the European Nephrology Society, has very similar guidelines as to what I just went over from the KDGO. I've pointed out a couple of little things in blue that are different. They do recommend a lower oral prednisone dose than the KDGO guidelines, and I think we all understand why we're trying to achieve lower glucocorticoid dosing in our patients because of all the both acute and chronic side effects. So what we're excited about in the lupus community, and I'm sure you're aware, is that we've had new therapies approved specifically for lupus nephritis. Belumimab was approved in December of 2020, and it also received approval for pediatric lupus nephritis in 2022. And voclosporin was approved in January of 2021. So very close to each other. Two drugs were approved by the FDA. This is a schematic of how the BLIS-LN trial was conducted. BLIS-LN was the phase three trial that was used for approval, belumimab for lupus nephritis. So this is the top line data at week 104. You can see that compared to placebo, significantly more patients in the belumimab group achieve a PERR response. Okay, so what is PERR? So it's very similar to complete renal response, except it's a little bit more relaxed. So the urine protein to creatinine ratio, instead of being less than or equal to 500 milligrams a day, was less than or equal to 700 milligrams a day, or 0.7. The EGFR had to be 60 or more and could not decrease from baseline more than 20%, and no rescue therapy could be given. And here you can see the PERR and complete renal response by visit over the 104 weeks, as well as time to PERR and time to CRR. And you can see that 
it really takes about six months to start to differentiate the lines between the belumumab subgroup and the placebo subgroup, as seen in the first graph on the left, on the top left. And the same thing is seen in the uh, complete renal response group. And then the time to maintaining a CER is at least eight weeks longer, probably, throughout the trial. Now, we did a post hoc analysis of the Bliss LN trial that was quite informative. We could choose as site investigators the standard of care regimen we use. And so if you look at the forest plot on the upper left, you can see this is all, all organized as the PERR on top and the CRR on the bottom. And then I've given you the breakout by mycophenolate. And the patients with mycophenolate were maintained with lower dose of mycophenolate after the first six months. The patients with cyclophosphamide were maintained with azathioprine after the three months of cyclophosphamide. And this is just like we do in the Eurolupus protocol. You can see that really the complete renal response and the PER response favoring the lumimab was driven mainly by the patients who had standard of care therapy with mycophenolate as opposed to cyclophosphamide. We found some very interesting additional effects of belumumab that I think are really important for patients. Look on the very last forest plot, and this is lupus nephritis flare. And you can see that there were fewer flares, in other words, favoring belumumab, fewer flares in the arm of the patients receiving belumumab. And it didn't matter whether their standard of care background therapy was mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide-based. It didn't matter if they had proliferative lupus nephritis or pure class 5 or a combination of proliferative and pure class 5. The other thing that I find remarkable is what happened to kidney function in patients in the belumumab arm. If you look at the placebo group compared to the belumumab group, you see that numerically the decline in the placebo group was much higher than the belumumab group. Now, that didn't quite reach statistical significance. I need to point that out. And the study wasn't powered to look at that, but it is suggestive of preservation of kidney function. If you look at a 30% sustained decline in GFR or a 40% sustained decline in GFR, these are endpoints that are sort of associated with a poor long-term kidney survival, and the FDA is looking at these as endpoints. You can see that there were far fewer patients achieving this endpoint in the belumumab group and that was statistically significant. So a takeaway from this, and again, keep in mind, this is a post hoc analysis, is that belumumab seems to provide preservation of kidney function in patients with lupus nephritis. So that's a very interesting outcome of this secondary subgroup analysis. Now let's shift over to calcineurin inhibitors and what we call multi-targeted therapy for lupus nephritis. Voclosporin, which was the other drug approved, is calcineurin inhibitor. The rationale for using a calcineurin inhibitor is using drugs with complementary mechanisms of action at reduced doses. We might be able to achieve synergistic effects while minimizing toxicity. So the main immunologic effect of calcineurin inhibitors is to inhibit T-cell activity. And T-cells, of course, are important in the pathogenesis of lupus nephritis. On the downside, calcineurin inhibitors, as you probably know, have an associated nephrotoxicity. Some of this is acute and very reversible. You have vasoconstriction, and so you can drop your GFR. You have some impairment of endothelial cell function, and that often correlates with the peak CNI dose. This presents as an acute increase in serum creatinine. It's dose-dependent, and it's reversible with dose reduction. More sticky is chronic nephrotoxicity. That's irreversible. We've seen this defined in transplant patients that have to be on lifelong calcineurin inhibitors. Uh, histopathologically, this is uh, scarring of the kidney. There is a role of TGF-beta in this, and this can present as chronic and progressive renal insufficiency, increased blood pressure, and tubular dysfunction. So vocalosporin is a next-generation calcineurin inhibitor. It has a backbone that's very similar to uh, cyclosporin, but it has this extended double-bonded carbon. This actually increases its potency several fold. Importantly, we don't know about the chronic nephrotoxicity yet. 
Those studies are being done. There are some animal studies to suggest voclosporin may be less nephrotoxic than other calcineurin inhibitors, but that has not been verified in a direct study with patients to date. So this brings us to the Aurora Phase three trial, which was the pivotal trial for approval of voclosporin for lupus nephritis. This is the top-line data for voclosporin. The primary endpoint was complete renal response at week 52, defined there on the right. And you can see that that is a urine protein to creatinine ratio of 500 milligrams or less, 0.5. EGFR had to be above 60, and the baseline could not decrease more than 20, or no decrease from baseline of more than 20%. And prednisone had to be below 10 milligram a day for the last few weeks of the trial. But you can see here that there was a significant increase in patients achieving complete renal response at week 52 in the voclosporin arm compared to the placebo arm with a fairly large effect size. If you look at subgroup efficacy analysis of complete responders at week 52, I've boxed a couple of important things. Oftentimes, we haven't really had looks at the ethnicity of patients and their response or race in these trials. But here we had enough patients that we could subgroup and show that patients of Asian background or African ancestry did well with the voclosporin, as did patients of Hispanic ancestry. So that's important for going forward with application of this medication. These are the long-term results. We extended the one-year trial in patients who had done well. That was called the Aurora 2 trial, and they maintained their subgroup for the following two years. And you can see that the patients in the voclosporin arm maintained a proteinuria advantage and a GFR, well, a proteinuria advantage on the left. You can see the blue line. And what I want to point out on the right is the GFR over three years. So now the blue line is patients who have received calcineurin inhibitor over three years. You can see that right at the beginning of the study, the GFR drops a little bit, and that has to do with the hemodynamic effect of the calcineurin inhibitor, which I discussed earlier. Both of these drugs had favorable side effect profiles. I realize this slide is very busy. You can look at it in more detail. But if you look just at the top line, BLIS-LN is on the left. All adverse events were similar in the blumamab and placebo group. Similarly, if you look at the Aurora 1 trial, you can see that adverse events were similar between the control arm and the voclosporin arm. So let's put it all together and using these data to inform therapeutic decisions. What favors belumab and what favors vocosporin? Well, belumab can be used in patients as it has no effect or maybe a beneficial effect on GFR. It can be used in patients with a low GFR and or significant chronicity on the kidney biopsy. Low-level proteinuria was really the subgroup of patients who did well with lumumab, voclosporin. There was no difference in the levels of proteinuria. So if the patient has heavy proteinuria, that would favor voclosporin. Both drugs did well in terms of side effects. Belumamab has the advantage of being given parenterally, so it can be given in patients that have adherence issues with oral medications or patients that prefer parenteral therapy. Voclosporin is oral, and if a patient can adhere to their oral medications, combination of medications, that's an advantage. Hello, this is Dr. Sarah Shake from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to this educational activity on diagnosing and managing systemic lupus erythematosus and lupus nephritis in the context of culturally competent care. Let's focus on recognizing health disparities in SLE and lupus nephritis. We know that SLE is disproportionately prevalent within minoritized groups in the United States, and in this graph, you see the distribution and prevalence of SLE per 100,000 cases by race, ethnicity, and sex. And when we think about disparities in SLE prevalence, in this particular study, they found that among U.S. Medicaid enrollees, the prevalence of SLE and lupus nephritis was highest in zip code areas of lowest socioeconomic status, even after adjusting for multiple other factors, including age, race, and ethnicity. So this tells us that there is more to the equation. And here you see all the social determinants of health that play an important role in the health and outcomes of our patients. 
we recognize that specific racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to develop lupus at a younger age. They have more severe symptoms at onset. Their mortality is at least three times as high as in white patients. And we also know that poverty is associated with poor outcomes. SLE ranks amongst the top 20 leading causes of death among U.S. females ages 5 to 64 years. And among young Black and Hispanic females, SLE is ranked as the fifth and sixth leading cause of death. Lupus patients who are diagnosed early experience fewer flares and exhibit fewer comorbidities. This results in less healthcare utilization and fewer costs because of fewer flares and fewer comorbidities. And in one particular study, patients with a late diagnosis experienced a 35% increase in renal disease-related comorbidities. In this particular study, the authors looked at delayed diagnosis in racial and ethnic minorities when it comes to lupus. Longer times to SLE diagnosis were associated with African-American or Asian race, lower educational attainment, and lower socioeconomic status. And minoritized populations often waited over one year to receive a diagnosis of lupus. African-American and Asian patients with SLE were less likely to see a specialist within three months. We also know that patients of racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to develop lupus nephritis. The risk of lupus nephritis is higher in African, Asian, and Hispanic ancestry compared with European ancestry. Important disparities exist in SLE survival rates by race, ethnicity, gender, age, and social disadvantage. The APOL1 high-risk genotype carriers are at increased risk of end-stage kidney disease and mortality, and progression of lupus nephritis to end-stage kidney disease is higher in patients of African ancestry, 62%, compared with patients of European ancestry, 19%. Effective communication with our patients and between physicians and healthcare providers leads to effective patient-centered care. We want to empower patients to be partners in their own health and their own care. In one particular study, they found that Black patients had more severe SLE but thought that the communication with healthcare providers was hurried with the use of difficult words. This shows us that there are potential areas for intervention in the clinic in every patient encounter. It's important to optimize communication with our patients, to avoid difficult vocabulary, and to avoid speaking quickly. So our goal really should be to empower our patients to work together with us and to be invested partners in their own health and their care. So in thinking about the way forward, effective communication amongst healthcare providers and physicians, and especially with our patients, equals collaborative and equitable care. Now let's turn it over to Dr. Brad Roven to hear his perspective on the issue of healthcare disparities in lupus nephritis. Dr. Rovin, what do you think healthcare providers can do in their practices, especially to help combat the problem of healthcare disparities in caring for patients with SLE and lupus nephritis? Thanks a lot, Dr. Sheikh, for that perspective. And I agree with you entirely that patients of African ancestry, patients of Asian ancestry, patients of Hispanic ethnicity tend to have severe lupus nephritis and aggressive lupus nephritis that is sometimes difficult to manage. And some of that is certainly related to biology, but some of it may also be related to other issues that are relevant to this discussion of healthcare disparities, not the least of which is access to care, trust in the system, etc. So one of the things I've learned is really important is that patients need to trust the physician who's helping manage their disease because that really promotes good outcomes. If a person understands what you're doing, why you're doing it, trusts that you're doing this for the right reasons, they tend to participate in their therapy, and that usually results in better outcomes. One of the things that is a problem with lupus is that it's hard to diagnose, as you well know. And disease manifestations can come sequentially. They're not specific at first. And the diagnosis can take a long time. And it turns out that diagnosis of lupus in African ancestry patients takes longer than in white patients. And as a person is going through this process of not really having a diagnosis, this can take away from trust in the healthcare system. So I think it's important 
when we first meet patients to really understand what their experience has been in their lupus diagnosis, what they actually understand about their diagnosis, because that's another big issue that I find is that patients are given a diagnosis of lupus. And by the time they see me, they're often given a diagnosis of lupus kidney involvement. They have been told that this is a bad thing without much other information. And that's a pretty scary scenario. The other thing that I think is important for healthcare providers, and I realize this takes a long time and clinic schedules are busy. I understand that. But my first visit, I really spent a lot of time talking about what lupus kidney disease is and answering any questions that the patient may have. And I like to have a family member with the patient when we're doing this. It's really important that the family also understands what the patient's going through and that the family member can ask questions. Because I think it's really important for family support during the treatment of lupus nephritis, since it's pretty rigorous and patients may not feel well all the time. So I think education and call it health literacy, I think is the formal term, but educating the patient about their disease is a way to reduce healthcare disparities. And as you know, patients come from all different backgrounds and patients who may be disadvantaged may not actually have access to the same information as other patients. And finally, I'm going to make sort of a plea. This is more my investigator hat, but I think we as lupologists have to try harder to have patients of all different races and ethnicities in our clinical trials. I think that's important because we want to be able to say to a patient, we've tested these drugs and we know they work in patients like you. And I'm not entirely sure we can say that now, given sort of the makeup of clinical trials. So what I think healthcare providers sort of at the front line can do is explain what clinical trials are, tell patients that this is sort of a um, renaissance, if you will, for lupus and lupus nephritis, given the number and variety of clinical trials, and see if patients want to participate. And my suspicion is if patients are asked, they will want to participate and explain the need for it. We need to have patients of African ancestry in our clinical trials. We need patients that are Hispanic in our clinical trials. And even if the healthcare provider is not involved in a clinical trial, there's a lot of accessible information out there through the Lupus Foundation of America, as an example, about centers that are doing clinical trials and what clinical trials are available. And I feel like by involving patients in the trials, in the development of new drugs, knowing that these drugs were in patients of various ethnicities and various races gives us a lot of credibility in earning the patient's trust when we want to treat them with these medications and allowing the patients to be adherent to their regimen and to participate in their health care. Thank you, Dr. Rodvin, and thank you all for joining us. We hope you found this program informative and it will help you enhance the care of patients with lupus. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JPU 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK.